We're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 16 today. Jeremiah chapter 16. Please follow along as I read this morning's passage. I'm going to read the entire chapter, 21 verses. If you've got a Bible, it'll help to follow along. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me. You shall not take a wife, nor shall you have sons or daughters in this place. For thus says the Lord concerning the sons and daughters who are, in, who are born in this place, and concerning the mothers who bore them, the fathers who father them in this land, they shall die of deadly diseases. They shall not be lamented, nor shall they be buried. They shall be as dung on the surface of the ground. They shall perish by the sword and by famine, and their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth. For thus says the Lord, do not enter the house of mourning or go to lament or grieve for them, for I have taken away my peace from this people. My steadfast love and my mercy declares the Lord. Both great and small shall die in this land. They shall not be buried and no one shall lament for them or cut themselves or make himself bald for them. No one shall break bread for the mourner to comfort him for the dead, nor shall anyone give him the cup of consolation to drink for his father or his mother. You shall not go into the house of feasting to sit with them, to eat and to drink. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will silence in this place, before your eyes and in your days, the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of a bridegroom and of the voice of the bride. And when you tell this people all these words, and they say to you, why has the Lord pronounced all this great evil against us? What is our iniquity? What is the sin that we have committed against the Lord our God? Then you shall say to them, because your fathers have forsaken me, declares the Lord, and have gone after other gods, and have served and worshipped them, and have forsaken me, and not kept my law, and because you have done worse than your fathers. For behold, every one of you follows his stubborn evil will, refusing to listen to me. Therefore, I will hurl you out of this land, and into a land that neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods day and night, for I will show you no favor." Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When it shall no longer be said as the Lord lives who brought up the people out of Israel, out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up the people out of the north country and out of the countries where he had driven them. For I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. Behold, I am sending for many fishers declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rock. For my eyes are all on their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. But first, I will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin, because they have polluted my land with the carcasses of their detestable idols and have filled my inheritance with their abominations." O oh Lord, my strength, my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble. To you shall the nations come from the ends of the earth and say, Our fathers have inherited nothing but lies, worthless things in which there is no profit. 
Can man make for himself gods? Such are not gods. Therefore, behold, I will make them know. This once I will make them know my power and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. Father, we ask that as we come into this word today that you will help us, convict us, that you will speak to us through the power of your Holy Spirit. Come, let us experience the presence of Jesus and do a work in us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 I want to talk to you this morning on this theme, as I mentioned earlier, praising God for His sovereign grace. Praising God for His sovereign grace. As we walk through this difficult passage, I hope that our response at the end of it is to give God praise. Which is why I'm saying praising God for His sovereign grace. Listen, here's, here's what we're going to do, and this is what I hope. As we look at the reality of exile, and as we realize that exile is not just Israel's, but exile should have been ours. As we look at the reality of judgment, and as we realize judgment isn't necessarily just for Israel, but it should have been ours. As we look at these themes, and then as we see God bringing the people back, this great hope of salvation, our only response to this, I believe, is utter praise. Glory to God alone, falling at His feet, worshiping Him for His sovereign grace. I hope that our response as we see how far we've fallen and how far He has brought us is to say, wow, how good His grace is to us. I recently read the story of Sister Brown. She was uh, an older saint who had lived many, many years in a certain neighborhood going to a certain church. And she went, she went to a shouting church where people spoke back to the preacher, which you guys are welcome to do. Thank you. There we go. And then she moved to a new neighborhood. She had to find a new church. First Sunday at her new church, she sat in the front row, and as the preacher preached, she said, amen, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus, praise God, preach, reverend. Well, she didn't know that she had joined a uh, church that wasn't a shouting church. This is what you would call a high church. And people were offended by her external forms of praise. After a couple weeks, people actually formed a little committee. So we're going to deal with this. We're going to have a chat with her and explain to her that this is disrupting our service. Two people on the committee saw her in a department store, and they thought, ah, this is our time. Let's just go ahead and have this conversation with her now, get it out of the way. And so they're walking up to her, and she sees them coming, and, and she's there holding her bags, and she sees them, and she lifts her hands up, and she, she says, praise God, members from my church. And they say, shh, keep it down. And, and they say, this is what we need to talk to you about. Is you're, you're too verbal. You shout too much. And she looked at them so confused. 
And she said, now hold on. You don't know me, and you don't know how far God has brought me. Every time I think about how good the Lord has been to me, I can't help it. In fact, hold my bags. I'm going to shout right here in the store. <laughs> Look, when we encounter what we're about to encounter, how far we have fallen and how far God has brought us, I hope that that's our response. That we would, whether it's metaphorically or literally, shout praises to the King, to the Sovereign God who has saved us by His own power. Do you know the exile that should have been yours? Do you know the judgment for your sin that should have been yours? Do you know the sovereign grace of God? Let me define these terms for you. You're going to need to know these terms. Sovereign means utter control. Grace means giving us what we don't deserve. Putting this theologically, God has utter control over what He gives us. God has utter control over giving us our salvation. Now here's the reality. And this is why we don't well up in praises when we read chapters like this. The reality is we think that we don't deserve hell. The reality is that we think we have earned some grace, some salvation. The reality is humans are not amazed by God's grace, but rather humans take God's grace for granted. And so then when we hear of God's grace and we see how far He's brought someone, we just say, well, of course. Because don't we deserve heaven? What I want you to see as we study the exile that Jeremiah is saying the people are going into is that this exile is a mere glimpse of the exile that should have been ours. But what's more, as we see the salvation that He prophesies for them that is coming, that salvation is ours. And it's only ours by God's sovereign grace. If I could put this into a sentence, simply this. Since we deserve exile, let's praise God for His sovereign grace. You got that? Since we deserve exile, let's praise God for our sovereign, for His sovereign grace. Let me, let me talk about each one of those. First, we deserve exile, a.k.a. judgment. You know, everybody wants justice for others, right? Like, for example, on uh, Instagram, I follow Murder, Inc., uh, which is sort of a news outlet, if you would, that focuses on mostly murder. And uh, recently there was a story on there of a man in Montgomery County, 72 years old, who had, uh, it had just come out and he was convicted of raping a young girl for an entire year. And as the news story went on, it says this, the district court judge granted 75,000 unsecured personal bond, allowing him to walk out of jail without putting down a single dime. 
Instead, of, instead, he just had to sign a paper promising to return to court and wearing a tracking device. Now, 398 comments of people demanding justice. Things like, how can a 72-year-old rapist walk around as if nothing happened? Listen, we are a people who intrinsically want justice. And justice means judgment for those who have done wrong. Yet at the same time, ironically, we don't want justice when it comes to our own sin against God. What we see here is judgment coming to the people of Israel because they have sinned against God. And this, is, this judgment, by the way, is not just some random enemy. This isn't just Babylon. Babylon isn't their biggest problem. The judgment isn't even the wrath of Satan. The devil isn't their biggest problem. The judgment aren't, isn't a result of God's arbitrary laws that God just came up with and said, hey, I want you to follow these things. I'm just shooting off the hip. Here's a couple laws, and by the way, you broke them. But no, God has given us His moral law. God is the Creator. His laws reflect what is good, what is right, what is beautiful. The judgment that we see coming comes as a result of them looking God and His moral law in the face saying we want something different. And it is cosmic treason. This is God's judgment coming on the people of Israel. God, while He's sovereign over salvation, is also sovereign over judgment. God is a God of justice, and He will not look away from sin. He will not look away from evil. Look at verse 2 in chapter 16. As this difficult passage begins, what we see is that Jeremiah is forbidden from taking taking a family. Don't take a wife. Don't have sons or daughters in this place. Now this would have, just a little side note, put Jeremiah in a very strange, abnormal category in his time. This is a time where success meant having a family and children. It was uncommon to be single in the ancient world. And so for Jeremiah then to be told by God you're going to live a life of singlehood, would have put him in a very strange place, a very abnormal com- uh, category, and would have contributed to his own sorrow throughout his life. Which, by the way, this right here flies in the face of the prosperity gospel. Preachers who would say that following God is going to decrease all of the sorrow in your life. Following God is going to bring you an abundance of stuff. For Jeremiah, following God meant increased sorrow temporarily in this world. Yet it's also God's strange grace. Look at verse 3. He says, for the reason he's forbidden from taking, for, from taking a family, for, thus says the Lord, verse 4, they shall die. This judgment of God that is going to be so severe that all in the land are going to die. And God is forbidding the prophet from taking a family because he doesn't want the prophet to have the heartache of losing a wife and children when this judgment day comes. Verse 4 describes the judgment that is coming, and it is ugly. 
We see here uh, the, the, the people are, who die, they're not going to be lamented. They're not going to be buried. Their, lo- their bodies will just lie as dung on the surface of the ground. They, they will be birds of uh, food for birds of the air. Ultimate disrespect for a dead body. In verse 6, both great and small shall die in this land. They shall not be buried. No one shall lament them or cut themselves or make themselves bald for them. Nobody shall break bread for the mourner to comfort the dead, nor shall anybody give them a cup of consolation. These are just funeral practices. Listen, in the ancient world, to have a proper burial, to not let any birds feast on the carcass of the dead body, to then have a funeral and a repast afterward and have the food and the cup of consolation for the family. This was respect for the dead. What he's saying is, is when my judgment comes, there will be no respect for the dead. They are just going to be spread out. They're going to be food for the birds and they're not going to have a funeral or a repast. Nothing. And then he goes on in verse 5, verse 8 and 9, Jeremiah is himself forbidden from from attending funerals. He's forbidden from attending weddings. Why? Well, he tells us, which I'm going to get to in just a moment, in verse 5, Jeremiah is forbidden from attending a funeral, from showing his own mercy, from showing his own kindness to families that are mourning, to be a picture to the people that God is showing no kindness to them. And God is showing no mercy to them. Look at verse 5. This is probably maybe the most, at least one of the most sobering lines in all of the Old Testament as he gives the reason for forbidding Jeremiah from attending funerals. Verse 5, he says, Do not enter the house of mourning, or go lament or grieve for them. And here's the reason. For I have taken away my peace from this people, my steadfast love, and my mercy. Peace, shalom, steadfast love, chesed, the covenantal love of God and His mercy. These are three huge, defining words in the Old Testament to reference God's relationship with His people. And God is saying, don't go to their funerals. Don't show them any kindness. Don't show them any mercy. For I, Yahweh, the God who led them out of Egypt, am removing from them my peace, my steadfast love, and my mercy. It's not saying that God is no longer these things. God still is peace. God still is love. God still has mercy. But the peace, love, and mercy that God has been bestowing upon His people that they have been enjoying, God is now removing that from them. Can you imagine that horror? Listen, the land 
was to be holy. When God led them out of Egypt in the first exodus, He chose them to be His people. My chosen ones. Through whom the world is going to see His image. They are to radiate the beauty and the the glory and the holiness of God. He made a covenant with Moses on Sinai and said, hey, look, you can have the land. You guys are going to get the land. And that land is to be a holy place. That land is sacred. And you can stay there as long as I remain your one God. As long as you don't turn to other gods. As long as you continue to confess your sins and confess me as Lord. The land was to be holy, sacred. Yet they have defiled the land by bringing in all of these idols, by bringing in, turning to all of these gods. I am uh, a big fan of the, the TV show, The Office. Any Office fans? It's, it's not on anymore. R.I.P. There's this one scene in The Office which I have uh, always loved. You got Phyllis, who's one of the characters in the office. She's getting married to Bob. And uh, Michael Scott's the boss. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but he has this, he's got some serious issues. (laughs) All right? Serious issues. And uh, wants to be at the center of attention. Like, I don't know what what his problem was. But anyway, he wants to have a part in the wedding, in Phyllis's wedding. And so he gets his big role, and that is to push the wheelchair of his, her father down the aisle as he walks Phyllis down the aisle. He has a hard time walking. And so Michael Scott thinks this is it. He has the most important role in the whole wedding, and that is to push the wheelchair down the aisle. Well, right as the doors open, before they go down the aisle, her father, in this like heroic movement uh, moment, He says, I'm going to do it. I'm going to walk it. And he stands up out of the wheelchair. And he hobbles down on his own two feet as he walks his daughter down the aisle. Well, Michael Scott is not happy about this. And so as they're beginning the wedding, you got Michael Scott dragging this this, um, wheelchair, which is locked now. The dude locked it as he stood up. He can't push it. So he's dragging this wheelchair down the aisle in this wedding and uh, making all of this noise and then he gets up to the front and he takes his place on the stage, which he wasn't supposed to do, and stands there and then eventually he takes the mic and he, and he says, he pronounces them husband and wife before they were actually, it was a disaster, all right? Now what's so great about this is because we know a wedding is to be sacred, and so it's so, if, you, if you're into like awkward humor, you like this sort of thing. All right, it looks like some of us are not into awkward humor, and that's fine. I am. Some, the more awkward something is, the funnier it is. And to see him destroy something that is so sacred is hilarious. However, in real life, it's not so funny. Listen, I say all that to say the land was sacred. 
the land was, there was, there was intention with the people living in the land. It was to be a holy place to represent who God is to the world. And they have now turned to other gods. And they're living in their sin. And they have, according to verse 17, polluted the land. They have taken what is sacred and destroyed it. And it is in real life not funny because God is a holy, holy, holy God. And if He calls us to be a holy people, friends, family, what are we to be striving toward? Holiness. Judgment is God's. That's my first point. My second point is this. Ignorance and stupid, stubborn hearts That's ours. Look at verse 10. The people asked Jeremiah, what have we done to deserve this? Now, we need to take a little lesson from Jeremiah's patience. If you've ever dealt with sinners, you know that they're just blind. Like they really don't get it. We'll be walking through a process with somebody who is living in their sin and they just don't get it. And we have to keep explaining to them over and over and over again, this is what God requires of us and you're not living in this way. And we see their ignorance as they are living in their sin in verse 10. They say, what have we done to deserve this? Jeremiah, once again, patiently answers that question. He does it in two ways. First, in verse 11, he tells them, It's because your fathers have turned against me. And then he goes on to verse 12 and he says, what you've done is worse than your fathers. Not only has your fathers brought these idols in and you've turned to these idols, but you have these stubborn, evil wills. Which we're going to talk about more next week. You have desires that have taken control of your life. And they're ugly desires. And they're stubborn desires. They are wicked and evil desires desires. Ignorance, stubbornness is ours. Listen, it is God's grace if you see your sin. Do you realize that? Like Christians, we should be praying that God opens our eyes to our sin all the time. It's God's grace. You don't see your sin with natural eyes. We ought to regularly be on our face saying, God, please, just make me aware of my sin. Have you ever, maybe some of you haven't, but some of you may have been there before. Have you ever been in a a phase of your spiritual life where someone says, like, hey, let's confess our sins and you can't think of anything to confess? That's just simply because you're blind. (laughs) It's because sin blinds you. It's not because you're so cute and cuddly and got it all together. And actually, if you ask the people in the group, I'm sure they will help you. (laughs) Sin blinds us. And when we see our sin, oh, praise God for His grace. Because if He doesn't give us that kind of grace, this is us right here. Stubborn, ignorant hearts. Listen, if you're not a Christian, you don't consider yourself a Christian, but even now, you're starting to see your sin you're starting to realize that you have fallen from God's holiness, well, I think God's working in your heart. You don't see that with natural eyes. I think God is opening your eyes to something so that you might see that you have a Savior. 
we, 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 we justify our sin by appealing to God's grace, by appealing to His compassion. We, in the same way, like these people, are these ignorant people, while God is removing from them His steadfast love, His peace, and His mercy, they are clinging to the fact that God is a compassionate God. Oh, God's not going to do anything to us because He's compassionate. And don't we do the same thing? Justifying our own sin by appealing to God's compassion and mercy. Oh, I know I am an adulterer, but I know I find identity in my work. I know I covet. I know I disobey my parents. I know that I hate my neighbor. I know that I build idols and that I receive idols. I know that I build walls around me and from people that I don't like. I know that I lack forgiveness and love and kindness but God's got me. God is compassionate. Once saved, always saved. God's grace. Or maybe you've conquered a lot of these outward sort of sins, and you might say, I don't really struggle with lust anymore, but I do look down on those who do. I don't hate my coworker, but I don't love him. How easy is it for us to just ignore the sin in our own life? To ignore the lack of holiness in our own life by just simply appealing to the fact that God is gracious. So that we can go on sinning so that grace may abound. Paul says, certainly not. You're ridiculous. This is why every week as a church we have times of corporate confession together. This is why we this morning read the Ten Commandments. And took a moment of silent confession as we examine our sins. Listen, I know that interrupts the flow of singing. Sometimes we need to interrupt the flow of our emotions so that we might look to God's holiness, so that we might fall on our knees and then have an emotional response to His grace. Do we focus on sin too much because we do a confession, a time of confession? We've been told that. We've been told that, hey, because we do a, a time of confessing your sins every Sunday, that we have too much of a focus on sin. No, I think most churches have too little of a focus on sin. Just simply appealing to His grace and His mercy. Family, how can we know His grace and mercy if we don't week after week after week look at our sin? Realize the truthfulness of our sin. It's knowing how far we've come that causes us to shout, Hallelujah! Praise God for His sovereign grace. This is what wells up in us. Emotions of love and adoration and glory to God. Because we see our sin. And we see that Christ is enough to cover all of our sin. This is where we're going in the text. We see the judgment that is Israel's, but God doesn't stop there. He leads us into salvation. Look at, look at the verse 14 right there. You see that therefore? 
What that means is the meaning of all that has come before is found in where I'm about to go. Meaning I've talked to you all about this horror of exile and judgment because I want to talk to you about where, I'm, where we're going to go. Salvation through judgment. The judgment of God is actually a move in God's redemptive act in bringing salvation to not only His people, but the entire world. Look at verse 14. It says, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said as the Lord lives, who brought up the people out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up the people out of the north country. And out of all the countries where they had been, been driven, for I will bring them back. Luke Moon was a member of our church previously, and he's moved to Georgia, and he's in the military, and he, he, last I talked to him, he was jumping out of airplanes. And he jumped out of an airplane 10,000 feet high. It was a 10,000 feet fall. And his parachute didn't open. Couldn't get it open the entire way down. Just a few seconds before he crashed to earth, the parachute opened. I don't think it helped very much. And he crashed to earth. Shattered his arm, destroyed his elbow. Super messed up. But really what he wanted to tell me was that by the end of the week he was back on his bicycle. The dude is an animal. If any of you remember Luke Moon, he was the kind of guy that would like in negative two degrees be riding his bike through the neighborhood in t-shirt and shorts. An animal. Surviving a 10,000 foot fall. Listen, we have not fallen 10,000 feet. We have fallen 10 million feet. We have smashed to earth but what this text is about to show us is that no matter how far you've fallen, God is able to pick you up, put you back together, and get you back on your feet in no time. God is able to do a work of restoration in a destroyed person's life beyond your comprehension. We saw where the exile has taken them, but wait till you see where his salvation is bringing them, is what, I, is what Jeremiah is saying to us. Here in verse 14, he reminds us of the Exodus. The Exodus was a hallmark of their entire story. And what he's saying in verse 15 is that there's going to be a new Exodus. Something that is going to eclipse the first Exodus. A second exodus in which God is going to go into all of the nations and bring His people back into the land. In verse 16, He says, I'm going to send them many fishers. Which, by the way, is negative here. This is a reference for Babylon who's going to come in and fish them out. In Habakkuk, it says that as, because of God's judgment, He's going to make His people like fish who have no ruler, who have no leader, and they're lured away by the enemy. But how does Jesus turn this word on its head in Matthew? What does Jesus tell His disciples to do? I'm going to make you what? Fishers of men. Meaning, fellas, we're about to bring them back. 
what Jesus was saying was that this second exodus is beginning. It's initiated. The great work of restoration coming back from exile is now upon us because of Jesus Christ. And not just for ethnic people of Israel, but look at verse 19. He says, to you the nations come from the ends of the earth saying, our fathers have inherited nothing but lies, worthless things. The nations are coming. The nations are part of this exodus. And that's our confession of faith right there. Our fathers have inherited nothing but lies. The things that we've passed down, the things that we've received are just a bunch of junk. Can anybody in verse 21, can anybody, or verse 20, can anybody make gods for themselves? No. Such are not gods. There is this great work of restoration that is coming to all of the world, and it is going to be wonderful and beautiful, and it is eclipsing the first Exodus. Have you ever seen these signs on any of the houses around the neighborhood that says, we buy ugly houses? You ever wonder, why does somebody want to buy an ugly house? Like these, these houses are, are not worth a, a dime. They're filled with junk. They're falling apart. Why do they want to buy ugly houses? Well, it's because they know that they can take this ugly house, fix it up, and make it beautiful. You know who buys ugly houses? You know who, who, who buys someone who is unworthy, filled with junk, a fixer-upper, but destroyed? Like this is a complete rebuild. Who does this but one who says, I can fix this up and make it beautiful? This is what God is doing in this second exodus. He's not just simply bringing people back into a land. He's restoring entire lives. He's going out into all of the nations, all of the world, and He's buying houses that need to be fixed up, that have been destroyed by sin. And check this out. He is turning these houses into a place for His Holy Spirit to dwell. This is the second exodus. God's Spirit is coming to live with us. He's moving in. You see, when Jesus was born, by that time, the people had already come back from Babylon. By that time, the, the, the people were back living in the physical land. Yet, they, what they realized was that there's still exile going on. We're still enslaved. There were still idols all over the place. And what Jesus shows us as the New Testament pages unravel, what Jesus shows us is that our exile was not just Babylon. But our exile was that of sin and death and eventual hell. Jesus lived a life of holiness. Jesus died on the cross. And on that day, Jesus experienced the total, full exile that should have been ours. As He cried, My God, My God, why have You forsaken me. 
And three days later, he rose again from the dead, beginning, initiating this new exodus. This restoration, bringing those who are trapped within sin, enslaved to their passions, rescuing them and bringing them to life so that he might live with them, so that they might be a holy people. This is God's sovereign grace. Notice, we don't do anything. Look at verse uh, 15. He says, I will bring them back. I'm going to do this. They're not bringing themselves back. Or in verse 19, he says, or verse, verse 21, he says, I will make them know. They're not making themselves know. This is God's sovereign grace in restoring us, in giving us new life, in pulling us out of exile. This is why, look at verse 19, Jeremiah praises God. He says, O Lord, my strength, my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble. We might be able to sing with Jeremiah that he is our strength because of his sovereign grace. Don't you see how his sovereign grace leads us to praise him? To thank him for his goodness to us? Israel had idols. But for Jeremiah, God is enough. God told Jeremiah not to have a family for his purposes. And for Jeremiah, God is enough. The question is, is God enough for you? Is God enough for me? People all around me are worshiping the idols that the world has created, that society has given us, that our fathers have passed down. But God is enough. Satan, you fooled me, you tempted me, you lured me, you drug me through the dirt, but God is enough. I've incurred my own guilt. I deserve damnation. But God is enough. I am ignorant of my sin. I was completely ignorant of my sin, but God was enough. I had a stubborn heart, stubborn desires, but God was enough. So often, even now, I I remain ignorant to my sins. I remain stubborn, but God is still enough. We were in exile. We were lured away, but God was enough. God is enough, and God will be enough to save us. Jeremiah saw this, and it was enough to lead him to praise God. You are my stronghold. We have seen more than what Jeremiah ever saw. Jeremiah just saw a shadow. We've seen the whole thing in Jesus Christ. Is it enough for you to praise Him for His sovereign grace? I had a conversation with a man some years ago out here on McCullough Street. An older gentleman. 
and we started talking about the Lord. And he said, you know, for many, many years I was out on the streets. I was hustling and gangbanging and using alcohol and drugs. And he said, I would always hear Christians sing this song, Amazing Grace. But I never really understood it. And then God saved me. And he said, when I look around and I see what I could have been, I see my friends dying. I see addicts continuing to crumble. He went on with this long list. And I realized that God, in His grace, saved me. He said, that's amazing. That's amazing. Amen? Amen. Is that amazing? Does His grace amaze you? His sovereign grace. Let's stand together. Why don't we sing a verse of that song, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Let's sing a verse.